Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Failed Critic Podcast, episode six. I'm Steve Norman, holding this whole thing together, and I'm joined by our resident critics, James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. This week, we will be starting off with the good, the bad, and the ugly, talking about the films we've been watching this week. Follow up with Triple Bill, as usual, this week. Films that take place in 24 hours or less. And finally, our new release review, which this week is The Raid. And we'll be continuing the format of splitting it into two bits where we talk about it unspoiled first and then later on. Full of spoilers. Um, but we'll tell you when to stop listening if you don't want it spoiled for you. So yes, how is everyone? I'm very good. Oh, it's a lovely sunny day. Uh, I've seen loads of films this week. I'm I'm pumped. I'm excited. You're pumped. We're, we're, are we going on American this week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm pumped. I, I feel like I've just seen the raid again. I'm ready to run down corridors and kick some ass. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> going to start busting out some uh, crazy kung fu moves in the middle of the pod. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, as ever. <laughs> <laughs> What's new? Excellent. So, James, how has the podcast been going? Since episode five was released. Wow. Uh, yeah, interestingly, uh, last week's podcast is one of our fastest downloaded ever. And considering it was epic in length, um, uh, that's brilliant news. Uh, thank you to everyone who's downloaded it and taken the time to listen to it and give us some feedback as well. Um, and interestingly, it seems our popularity seems to wax and wave either the length of the podcast or the quality of the film which we're reviewing, I'm not sure. But our shortest podcast, which also had Dark Shadows, is by far our least downloaded podcast. So uh, I don't, I'm don't, i not sure if it's length or terrible films which affects us. But uh, obviously, I've actually had some tweets from people this week, which is brilliant. So you can continue to contact us at The Failed Critic uh, using the Failed Critic hashtag and using our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash failedcritic, or on our blog, which is thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. How many downloads and what kind of tweets have we been getting? Okay, well, um, we are, we've passed already this month. We are into 430-odd downloads, so we're looking at possibly 500 downloads for the month of May if we keep on going the way we're going, which is fantastic news. Um, had some tweets about people's choices for Triple Bill this week. So I am going to mention those at the end of Triple Bill because if people have taken the time to tweet us, I'll give them a little name check in Triple Bill there. And I've also had some fascinating tweets about Cannes. 
Uh, obviously, it has been the Cannes Film Festival this week. Uh, and it's been really interesting to see. Obviously, I can't get there. None of us can get there. We've all got proper jobs and stuff. But some people who do this kind of thing for a living, bastards, uh, have been out on the French Riviera. Uh, and it's really interesting because Lawless, uh, which I mentioned as one of my top three for the summer, premiered at Cannes this week and got some really good reviews. That's the Prohibition-era thriller with Guy Pearce, Tom Hardy, Shire the Beef. Uh, great reception there. Wes Anderson's new film, Moonrise Kingdom, got a really good reception. That's out in cinemas this week. And also, um, thanks to, I do want to thank uh, at Tomlin ADCM, who provided me with some photos of some of the kind of less commercial successes that we'll see there. You've got to remember, it's not just all about the Palm Door. He sent me two uh, posters, one for Piranaconda, which sounds brilliant, um, but even more brilliant sound. Sharknado, um, where somehow a town in America gets attacked by sharks and a tornado. So I, I cannot wait. Are, wait they, are to the see. sharks in the tornado? I think they get whipped up out of the sea by a tornado and then somehow land on it. I, I've no idea. But wouldn't, um, wouldn't they lose their? Wouldn't, wouldn't they lose their effectiveness on on land? I mean, if you <laughs> if you got cl- if you got close to them, they they'd bite your arm off. But I mean, surely they're not. You know. Is there, anyway, we pro- if you have the misfortune of them landing on you, and, you know, chomping mm. on you as they hit the ground, we'd, we'd, we'd probably <laughs> best. That age-old question, isn't it? What would you rather fight, a shark on land or a lion in sea? I guess we'll find out with uh, <laughs> shark. Shark on land. Shark me though. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah. Shark man, mm. easy. <laughs> we'd probably best progress with this podcast. <laughs> Jerry sounds like he wants to start off from our pre-podcast chat with what he's been watching this week. Yeah. I've watched a few films this week. The first one I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll say this just as a brief mention. This is one I have the least to talk about, but I suspect James will have a lot more to talk about it. Uh, it's Martin Scorsese's Hugo, which I watched. I missed it last year. I mean, it was up for a lot of, of Oscars and things like that, and I missed it. But I watched it this week, and I don't really know what to make of it too much. It was a strange film in that I quite enjoyed it while I was watching it, but then I haven't really thought about it since. Which surprised me, really, because when I was watching it, it was really lovely to look at. I imagine if you watched it in 3D, it looked like it had quite a lot of things that were put in there just for the 3D purposes, you know. But afterwards, I can't say that it stuck with me, which which is somewhat surprising <coughs> the film. Um, but I have a feeling that James is a bit of a fan of, of Hugo. So I'll see if he has anything to try and make me think any higher of it. Yeah, I only I have only seen it once, and I saw it in the cinema in 3D as the director intended and everything. And it, it is one of the first 3D films where I've actually enjoyed moments of the 3D um, towards the beginning. Uh, and I quite liked a lot of the 3D work when you're looking at um, Melier creating his his fantastic cinema of the kind of early 1900s. What I did find weird, and I've got this problem with all 3D anyway, is the fact that it was completely redundant for a large parts of the film, which were generally two people talking. Um, there's not that much action in the film. Uh, it's a, for a kid's film, it's, it's quite long and at times with not a lot going on. My main love for it really is um, Ben Kingsley's performance as George Melier. It was fantastic. Uh, and just the way it opened up the world of George Melier to me, and it, it made me go out, it, I bought... Uh, La Voyage Dans la Lune uh, because of it and I've started to investigate a bit more about Melier's early work and some of the other proponents of early cinema at the time. I, I, I 
in a way, I do agree with you a bit. It's nothing that I, I it's out on DVD, it's out on Blu ray, and I haven't bothered to go and buy it. So it had, whereas there's a few that I'm waiting to be released, like The Artist or something like that. I'm waiting to go and buy that. The Mother <coughs> is another one. Um, but it, it didn't affect me that. I, th- I agree with you. When you watch it, it's a really lovely film. And you're pro- the thing is, you're probably quite right. It doesn't leave that much of an impression on you. And I'm surprised it was up for best picture in a way. Yeah, I mean, visually, it was it was absolutely stunning at times. Some of the stuff that, that he did, especially that opening camera shot, uh, which I believe took over a year to make, you know, with like CGI and everything. Mm. I mean, that was that was fantastic. And I've, I've got to admit, I didn't know anything about George Melier before other than the Smashing Pumpkins video for tonight's yeah. night, which references uh, <laughs> the voyage down the loon. So it was it was interesting. It was quite informative. But then, yeah, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head with the lack of action for a kids' film. There was there was really mm. very little in the way of dynamic cinema going on. But yeah. you, you can see what Scorsese's trying to do. He's ba- it was basically his kind of love letter to cinema, wasn't it? Yeah. It was good it, without leaving a lasting impression. Yeah, that, that was the thing. I'd say it's a family film. Yeah, it, 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 we have we don't have many films like that these days where um, they either seem to be aimed at adults or kids. And this is this isn't a kids' film, but it is a film which is appropriate for the whole family to enjoy. And that I think is we struggle with that a little bit these days because it seems to be they're either for kids or they're for adults. And it's there aren't many films which are made for the whole family to enjoy. And I do think older children and their parents would really enjoy this film. What else have you been watching this week then, Jerry? Uh, another Oscar-nominated, well, actually it was an Oscar winner, uh, was Beginners, which Christopher Plummer won the Best Supporting Actor Award for his performance in this. Uh, it's a, a guy mainly focused around Ewan McGregor, actually, who plays the main character, and his father is Christopher Plummer, who uh, in his 70s, after the death of his mother, his father tells him that he's gay, and he's been, you know, he's been gay all his life. It's about him dealing with that, but it's told retrospectively. You know, his dad dies from from cancer, which you you, you establish early on in the in the film, and it's sort of Hugh McGregor's memories interspersed with how he's dealing with it now and how it's affecting his life. You know, after the fact, it's also got Melanie Laurent in, who, if you don't know who she is, but you have seen Inglorious Bastards, she is Shosana in uh, in Inglorious Bastards, French actress. She's really good in this. She was really, you know, quite enchanted. Um, did the role really well, sort of dreamy, sort of. I can't really describe a character without giving too much away, but she's she's very good at what she does, as the sort of love interest for you McGregor and and how he's trying to reconcile his experiences recently with moving forward and, and building a life for himself again. Christopher Plummer steals the show, even though he's not in it that much, because he is just excellent. He's so convincing as his character. And it's very thought-provoking. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that cinema should be doing. It's asking questions, uh, showing something that you maybe don't think about, that maybe it's not too palatable for some people, at least. You know, It's not exactly a, a nice thing to discover that your dad has basically lived a lie all, all his life. And it was just, it was a very good film. I wouldn't say it was the best film out last year. I don't think it got any nods for best picture or anything like that, but the, the performances in it were good. McGregor's, as usual, you know, excellent self without ever really being striking or dramatic. He just, you know, he, he holds the whole thing together, really. Uh, it was nicely made. It was, it was nice atmosphere to the film as well. And it's a good watch without ever being, you know, one of your films of the year. It's certainly a, a very good way to, to spend a couple of hours watching it. 
Yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch it when it was out, but um, I've heard a couple of other people, I think, talking about it and saying it was really good. So, yeah, good to hear it's still getting positive reviews from, from people. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. It's not, you know, it's not going to be mind-blowingly good or anything, but it's, it's certainly a, a worth worth a watch. Anything else that you've watched this week that you want to? Uh, quickly, classic film that I watched this week uh, was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is obviously an adaptation of John le Carre's spy novel uh, from 1965, shot in black and white. It's got Richard Burton in it. Uh, it's also got Oscar Werner in it, who's, who's very good. If you like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you will like this. It's, I think it's just as good, if not slightly better story, having read the novels. Uh, it's a good adaptation without really going into too much detail. It's sort of it's the bare bones of the story. And I'm not sure if I hadn't read the novel whether I'd fully understand what was going on. But it's a good old bit of, you know, well, old 60s British cinema. Uh, well made, well put together, quite nicely paced. It's a really good story holds that, you know, drives the whole thing. Um, it's not, it's not exceptional. It's not brilliant. But if you if you like spy films, if you like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it's, it's well worth a watch. And I think the people who made Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy would do very well to to remake this one as well because it's an excellent story. And, and if it got the same treatment that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy did last year, it would be an excellent movie. Uh, so let's move on to James. What have you been watching this week? Uh, well, this week I've watched. For some reason, I decided to try and add even more uh, four-hour films into my list, so I watched a load of them. But I also managed to find time to watch a good, a bad, and an ugly film this week. So I'd like to... I'm going to start off with the bad film. Bad may be a bit harsh, but very disappointing. Uh, It's 500 Days of Summer, uh, directed by Mark Webber, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Zoe Deschanel. Look, I'm, I'm... I wouldn't like to admit it, but I probably am a bit of a hipster romantic at heart even though I'm old and terrible now. Uh, so I should have loved this film. There's a lot about it that is great, um, mainly the visual uh, visual direction from Mark Webber. The soundtrack is fantastic. There's plenty of Smiths on there, uh, which is good for me. I'm very happy with that. However, at the, at the heart of it, now they say at the beginning it is not a love story, it's a story about love, which is an important definition to make, I think, of this film. Um, however, I just couldn't get over the kind of whiny, angsty relationship problems that were going on in the film. They didn't interest me. I didn't have any particular affection for either of the characters. And there were just moments where it was just quirky beyond belief and it wound me up so much. There's one section where uh, the two main characters are in the kind of honeymoon period of their relationship and they go into Ikea and they're kind of going around pretending to live in there and all oh, the TV doesn't work. So, oh, so, oh that's so twee. It did my head in. Um, interestingly, though, it has raised my expectations for The Amazing Spider-Man coming out this summer because I did think visually it looked really good uh, and there was something very different about it. My main problem just was with the shoegazing indie relationship at the heart of it, which wound me up beyond belief. Did you like Zoe Deschanel in it? Uh, she, uh, I, I can't hate Zoe Deschanel. I quite like, her, but she, she was good at points, and then she was beyond infuriating at other points. Um, and I think that must be what it. I, I imagine that's what she's like in real life. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I thought Joseph Gordon-Levitt was good in it. Um, 
but he, it wasn't actually. There was one scene uh, which I think has been people may know about the scene, even if they haven't seen the film. The expectations versus reality of uh, you know, kind of like being invited round to a girl's house. That bit of cinema was fantastic, brilliantly filmed, a lovely idea, excellently executed. However, yeah. there was just too much of the rest of it wound me up too much and i do like unconventional love stories but i wasn't rooting for either of the two characters and i think that was the failure of it oh I, I i went to see it at the cinema um and i think if you buy into it it's actually a really really good film i can see why maybe if you didn't get on with the characters and didn't buy into that completely then it would be a bit greater and having watched it you know a, a couple of times afterwards it is sort of you know you can see why people get annoyed and I remember hearing reviews of it at the time when I think it was Commode was just he was so infuriated by Zoe Deschanel uh, her whole quirkiness and indiness but it, it's a it's a nice film I mean it's one of those films where actually rather than just doing the formulaic rom-com you know boy meets girl blah 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 blah, blah some kind of denouement some kind of reconciliation there we go fish bash bosh everyone's happy in the end I liked the fact that it, it didn't do that you know and it states that from the outset this is not it's not going to be like that. It was more realistic. Yeah. And I think I think why I liked it so much was because I thought, well, I've sat through so many bloody rom-coms <laughs> where there's no basis in reality. And it actually felt yeah. real. Yeah. As much as it was indie and quirky, I really liked that. And as you say, the director, the director did a really good job on it. Some of the visual style was brilliant. And the musical number, which just randomly turns up, was fantastic. So yeah, I thought that was a nice little moment. And and to be honest, the arguments in there, very realistic argument. The, the, yeah. the breakdown of the relationship was very realistic uh, and was brilliantly done. Um, it was just the fact that I didn't really care if they were getting... I, I think it was when they were happy and in love, that's when I hated it. Maybe it's just because I'm just miserable. <laughs> Maybe that was... The that makes you sound like the most bitter, cynical man. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I liked it until they were happy and in love. and then yeah. it was just <laughs> What else have you been watching then, James? Okay, I'll give you my ugly now. Um, this week, I won a competition somehow. I don't even remember entering it, but I got sent a copy of The Divide on DVD. Um, Divide from uh, last year, directed by Xavier Gens, who directed Hitman, stars Michael Bean from the Terminator and Alien films, Rosanna Arquette and Milo uh, Ventimiglia from Heroes, uh, mainly. Basically, right, the reason this is ugly... God, it's, oh, it was depressing. It was relentlessly depressing. The film opens on a nuclear attack on New York and it just shows the attempts of some people in an apartment block trying to escape this nuclear. Eight people managed to get inside a makeshift survival shelter, which has been built by the apartment block super, played by Michael Bean. Um, it then really just descends into a massively extreme Lord of the Flies, basically. There's a, a young kid in there and some guys in hazmat suits and machine guns come and take her for no, you know, no reason. They, they break in, they start threatening to kill people and they take the young girl and then they weld shut the door and seal these people in the apartment block. And that is when it gets, oh Christ, it was so depressing. <laughs> it's just, um, it is just mankind at mankind's absolute worst. Now, is it, it a saw well style sort of torture? I don't think it wasn't because I had heard a few people say this was kind of the torture porn uh, genre. I don't think it was because I think even though I didn't agree with the world, the filmmaker very clearly said 
these people are acting like this for a reason. Okay, um, you know they're trapped in here. It wasn't. It also wasn't that graphic. Uh, like you know, and there wasn't any kind of gratuitousness. Things were shown to say this person is bad for this reason and things like that. And there, there, there wasn't a senselessness to it. Um, so I think it was better uh, than a lot of the torture. Like Hostel was one of the films which disgusted me for its absolute gratuitousness. This was better than that in that it was a better made film and it had a voice and it said, "This, you know, I don't agree with the voice, but it said." Look, mankind can turn. Mankind is just basically shafted uh, because we are horrible people, and put under extreme circumstances, we will crumble as a society. My problem with the film was that none of the characters had any redeeming qualities. I, again, it's a very different film to Five Hundred Days of Summer, but the same problem was I didn't root for any of the characters. I kind of wanted them to die. Um, I didn't really care what happened to them, but it kept me watching to the end to a really bleak end as well. Um, and I turned it off. Uh, I just turned it off and thought, God, is that what we're really like as a species? I really hope not. Um, so that was my ugly. Um, and I want to get onto my good now, because my good, I've been looking forward to this for four years. Um, I've been building it up on this pod for a little while now. I went and saw Iron Sky this week. Oh, yes. The moon Nazis in 1945. They didn't, the Nazis they went to didn't the moon. even show it in a cinema in my county. Oh, that's, that's just <laughs> shocking. I thought, I thought, no, it wasn't anywhere around here either. I'm or. gutted. Um, and, and that is, I think it's a real shame. Okay, everyone knows, everyone who's listened to this before knows why I'm excited about Iron Sky. Nazis on the moon. And do you know what? What I really loved is five minutes in, Unlike the last internet-created blockbuster, Snakes on a Plane, which you know got, created a lot of internet buzz and then had fans suggesting things that they wanted in the film, uh, if you remember that, it took us about 30 to 40 minutes to actually get some snakes on a plane. That, you know, there was so much filler at the beginning of that film, that disappointed me. Here, within five minutes, we've got a Nazi on the moon. Uh, shooting someone in the head. Brilliant. Okay. We know where we are here. There's some lovely visual gags. Um, James Washington, who is the the good protagonist of the film, he is an African-American chosen to be sent to the moon uh, due to a Sarah Palin-esque president's re-election bid. She wants to send a black guy to the moon. He turns up on the moon in a black space suit. Uh, that, that's just ultimately cool for me. Um, but he gets captured by Nazis on the moon and... And then it just turns into a massive invasion of Earth type storyline. Really good fun, though. Um, the CGI is very good considering how low budget this film is. There's some very good jokes which remind me a lot of the comic strip presents when it was good, and uh, Whoops Apocalypse, the film and the TV series as well. It doesn't completely cross over into outright parody. Uh, it's just very silly at times. And there's, there are some parodies of society and things like that. Brilliant joke about Charlie Chaplin's uh, The Great Dictator, where there's a, a German school teacher who's playing the film to these children who've been raised on the moon as Nazis, uh, talking about Charlie Chaplin's 10-minute short film, Praising the Fuhrer, uh, which was a really nice touch. It showed their research was done very well. Uh, you can see the influence of Dr. Strangelove on it. There's a brilliant downfall kind of parody in there as well. It's far from perfect. There is some terrible performances in it. My, my main one being the, the Sarah Palin as US president shocking performance there. Uh, some of the dialogue is very weak. 
But do you know what? It's the little film that could. Uh, this film shouldn't have made it into cinemas, and it did. And I'm very pleased it did. And do you know what? It's going. To, it's a lot better than a lot of the multi-million blockbusters that have been released this year. I'm thinking especially films like John Carter of Mars or you know Dark Shadows that we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. This film was made for a, you know a tenth or less of their budgets and is a lot more fun. Well, we best move on to Owen's uh, films he's watched this week. Is this part is rapidly approaching <laughs> its end? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, my bad film is Cowboys and Aliens. I'll just come straight out and say it because it's not that it was especially boring or even poorly made or or even that uninterested, but it was just really flat and it had um, everything you were expecting it to do within the film, it did. And it didn't put any gloss on it. It didn't make it any more exciting than it should have been. It was just, everything just happened. It rolled along. It went from one scene to the next. Um, but the, the main problem with it, you've got a concept like there are cowboys and they're fighting aliens. Why why would you play it so straight? Why would you make it this drama, this action drama, when there, there's so much you could do with it to make it funny, put a bit of humour inside of it? I mean, Harrison Ford's in it, and um, he does he does his best, to be honest, but he's not on screen enough to drag this film out of being this really boring um well, I say, but it's not. It's not that it was boring. It was you. You could watch it, and but I'm, I'm not really explaining it very well. <laughs> you, you could watch the film without really being interested in anything that was happening. You, it's a classic case of you know you switch your brain off and watch a film, or you know, sort of a popcorn munching action film. I just Daniel Craig was so serious, and he was just sort of pouting like Megan Fox throughout the whole film. I mean. <laughs> He just he just needed to liven it up a little bit, and he failed to do that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really my my bad film of the week. I was disappointed a little bit because I heard it was terrible. Um, I just thought, well, maybe maybe it's so bad it's good, but it's not even so bad it's good, and it's not so good that it's good. It's... Yeah, like that. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's yeah. There's nothing nothing to it really. It, it just pretty bland film. How about your good film then? Um, my good film, um, well I'll try and keep it brief unlike what the film is. Uh, it's Gone with the Wind. Um, an epic four hour long film which I uh, sneakily broke down into three segments and watched it over a period of a few days. Which I know you're not really supposed to do. It's meant to be seen as this four hour long epic film. Um, but to be quite honest I just couldn't be bothered to do that. <laughs> Um, but no, it's a really good film. It's a classic for a reason. Everything about it is really good. Um, it tells the story of the uh, American Civil War. Um, it, uh, it, it is a little bit biased. I mean, it's from the perspective of um, some some Southerners, so you know, Confederates, and it was really um, heavily weighted in their favour. It's in their. It, it's very much biased towards these two characters, and the main two characters are. Um, Played by Vivian Lee and uh, Clark Gable, both put in really, really good performances. Um, Vivian Lee plays a really annoying character. Uh, she's really uh, sort of uh, quite, quite strong-willed character, um, and she's a bit spiteful as well. But it's—I mean—it's to Vivian Lee's credit that you actually like that character, even though you know she's one of the most annoying people you would ever meet if you did meet her and she was real. Um, but 
because Vivian Lee just plays her really well, and she's she's just got this little this charm to her that um, you overlook all the uh, the sort of selfish attitude that her character has, and you uh, you really sort of root in for her. You want her to to do well. You don't want her to be um, in a in a relationship that's not going to work out for her, kind of thing. Um, and Clark Gable's just uh, well, it's just Clark Gable, isn't he? He's just a really sort of <laughs> handsome man, and he's you know he's full of charm and wit, and he, yeah, I mean he's uh, but he plays the part really well. Uh, and actually, I think Vivian Lee and Clark Gable they do have this chemistry on screen together where they're they're really good at playing off each other, and uh, it sort of shows through in the film. And and partly as well, I mean it has just some classic lines of dialogue, doesn't it? You know the frankly my dear, I don't give a damn line. Like, it just sort of it's really you've heard it a million times, but it kind of slaps you across the face as, it, as it's being delivered. And uh, no, it's brilliant. I, re- I was really, I really enjoyed it. But the main problem is the length of it, because now I feel like I've seen it, um, and I don't have to see it again. And I'm quite happy about that because I don't think I could commit another four hours of my life to watching that film again. Um, but it's, yeah, it's one of those films that you, you know, everyone says you have to see it. It's, it's one of these classics of cinema. Um, so I did enjoy it. I'm just not really that sure I'll ever watch it again. Excellent. Well, I watched, well, there's three films. Well, one of them, basically, I did a double header. One was Mike Bassett, England manager of the European Championships coming up, but I've reviewed that before as part of a triple bill, and everyone, you know, if you're listed in England, you know the story. So England manager selected, not the favourite, ends up doing really well. It's a really funny take on football when a lot of people trying to... Uh, inject comedy into something football related can actually make it you know really unfunny but then I went on and watched like James watched A Night in Turin last week I watched the documentary that influenced Mike Bassett England manager can I not knock it can we not knock it the Graham Taylor documentary oh that's (laughs) such a brilliant documentary I I haven't seen it for so long you can just remember all of the best lines from it, like any epic film. Can we not knock it? Carlton Hitler's demand it. Everything. Tells the story <laughs> of Graham Taylor's torrid time as England manager where he spectacularly fails, uh, even more so than many other England managers have done. Um, but yeah, a brilliant documentary. Probably, you know, different in many ways to One Night in Turin, but but it's the same in so many ways as well. And another great sporting documentary. The bad film I watched, which I think might get disagreed with unanimously, I tried to... I do watch films that are deemed good and excellent from time to time. I wanted to try and prove that this week. I watched for the first time 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) I did not like it. Oh, no. It's one of my favourites. I I just found it boring, not enough happened, and it left too much open to interpretation. I don't mind things being left open to interpretation in films or television, like The Sopranos. I like the end of The Sopranos. Excellent. Leaves it open to interpretation. I just couldn't get on board with the space 2001. I just really couldn't. I think that's a shame. I really think it's a brilliant film. Um, I think Kubrick does amazing things with it, actually. Um, it, 
just everything about it. How could you not like it? So, some <laughs> Are of, you sure you're watching the right film? Some, some, of it visu- some, some of it visually was brilliant. I have to say that. Visually, it was an excellent film, but the, the plot and the story, I just, I just couldn't engage with it. It just wasn't enough. I just, I don't know, I didn't like any of the characters. It tended to bore me a bit. I think that was well, sort, the sort of, yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of <laughs> the point a little bit with the characters, isn't it? It, it, it? It's meant to sort of dehumanise them, I think. So you, you don't see them as people, you see them as characters in the story. Um, maybe, it turns a bit pretentious, I guess, but I think that, that's one of the strong No, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with it. I think, I think that's the idea. It's, it's meant to be an odyssey rather yeah. than a film. It's meant to be this sort of mythological, you know, journey with these characters that maybe aren't quite real. Yeah. I don't no, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not sure you watched the right film, Stevie. I definitely watched the, the right one. I just couldn't. I'm watching like Apollo 18 again, by accident. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't have made that mistake. No, there are some people that I've spoken to who I do respect their views on films who don't, who didn't like. And in fact, I'm not, I won't say don't get 2001 because that sounds really pretentious and saying it's all your problem, Steve, that you didn't like it. I'm not saying it is your problem that you didn't like it. But I, but I, I can't see, I personally can't see why someone wouldn't like it. <laughs> Sorry to agree with Owen. Well, I, I, Owen didn't like, Star- Owen opinion, doesn't like Star Wars, so I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah no, that's true. Quick, <laughs> deflect the blame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're going to take anything from this part of the podcast, Owen doesn't like Star Wars. Oh, brilliant, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Just repeat that again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, fair, it bears repeating. That's the thing. Really not Any, anyway, next next week I'll try and watch one of these great films that I've not seen before, and I'll try and enjoy it. <laughs> watch another Kubrick film. See, see if it maybe Kubrick style. It, it could well be. Anyway, let's wrap up part one, and in part two we'll be back with Triple Bill. With part two, and by now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know this is the part we call Triple Bill, where each week we pick a top three, each around a certain subject or topic. This week, we are picking films that take place in 24 hours or less. I'm going to start and try and redeem myself after not liking 2001 A Space Odyssey. My first film that takes place in 24 hours or less in my list is Die Hard. Nice. Your, choice. your, well, it's a typical Christmas story of a man trying to get home to see his family for Christmas. And he swings by the office to pick up his wife, go to the party for a little bit, the office party, uh, to probably make herself look a bit better by him showing up. Ends up being taken over by terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, John... to me every Christmas. Yeah, typical Christmas story, yeah. that. <laughs> Luckily, John McClane is a New York cop, and he doesn't mind shooting bad guys. But I'm sure we all know the plot to, to Die Hard, but yeah, takes place in, in a lot less than 24 hours, I think. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of hours, isn't it? it it's not quite real time, but it's it's not that much more. Than, oh, I think Die Hard's a cracking film, and exactly the kind of film 
I was thinking about when I said, let's do films that happen in less than 24 hours. Because I like that immediacy. I like the fact that the storyteller has got, you know, they can't cheat. They can't go back and forth. And and it says, well, okay, this is something that happens in this set period of time. It's it's exactly the kind of action film that Hollywood struggled to make now. Yeah. Which I'm sure you might be able to draw comparisons. I didn't see the raid, but you may be able to draw some comparisons between the raid and Die Hard. Indonesia is making this kind of film. Yeah. I think the raid is probably the best action film I've seen since the Die Hard films. Oh, my second film tempted to just pick the three original Die Hards, but that would have been too easy. (laughs) (laughs) So the second film I picked was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Another great choice. And yeah, good choice. It, it definitely takes place within 24 hours. It says so in the title. <laughs> <laughs> the star in Matthew Broderick tells the story of Ferris Bueller, who decides to sky school for a day and basically live out the best day off that he could have. Like We probably all dreamt of doing when we were at school, but just didn't have the bottle to it. And our day of skiving off just was pretending to be ill and then staying in bed because we thought if we went anywhere, we'd get caught out. Yeah, I, I love Ferris Bueller. Um, it's and also the great thing is about that, like you say, for a kid who's watching that film, uh, it's brilliant because all the kids watching that film will be Cameron and they'll want to be Ferris, and that's and uh, there's the old classic that is actually Ferris Bueller's Day Off is not about Ferris actually. The whole day is about Cameron and Cameron trying to overcome his. Um, his fear of being outgoing and stuff like that. Uh, John Hughes, absolute legend. No, I'm with you there, Steve. Yeah, it's just, it just makes you think that, God, when I was at school, I could have done something like this, but I probably couldn't have done really. I mean... <laughs> but, yeah. You know anyone who has a red convertible? <laughs> no, no, not no, quite. Well, then, ruled out on that one. It's also, got, it's also got Charlie Sheen playing a drug addict, drug addict which preempts the future quite well. <laughs> Probably wasn't even preempted. It probably was a drug addict back then as well. To be yeah. fair, <laughs> he probably just turned up on set one day and they just filmed him. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, obviously, lived the whole thing. And <laughs> and added added to the fact that you've got Ferris and his friend and um, his girlfriend trying to enjoy their day off. You've got the head teacher just trying to catch him out and hunt him down and find him. And yeah, yeah. it's a classic story. The other thing is, I think Ferris Bueller is significant in that it basically sets up uh, the Simpsons having Bart versus Principal Skinner. Yes, yeah. that whole yeah. the whole recurring storyline is kind of based on Ferris Bueller, isn't it? So yeah. And my my final film in my three might, well, it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's, it's okay. a technical technical inclusion that you're going to have to argue for here. Isn't it? No, no, because. <laughs> Because the way I the way I look at it is is you can't include Back to the Future even though he comes back to the future on the same day that he left because he's in the past for a couple of days. But in back in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they start off on the morning of this day where they've got to do this history assignment. They haven't done anything, and if they don't do it, one of them's going to get sent to military school by the dad because he's a, he's a bit of an ass. They go back in time. Something funny happens. They pick up a historical figure. They come back. It's all on the same. It's all on the same twenty-four hours. It probably takes about twenty, you know, less than twenty-four hours. Back to the Future doesn't. It takes more than that. Time travel and things. It was, but yeah, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Two friends who are, who are pretty hopeless. Stars are Keanu Reeves, um, 
in one of his first film roles. And yeah, they got, they've got the past history assignment, but they're basically hopeless. They end up going back in time because apparently their music saved the future. Um, I expect everyone knows the plot, really, don't they? That's three <laughs> 80s classics. That if, if Bill and Ted is 80s, or is it, is it Bill and Ted early 90s? I think but, it's 80s. But the three absolute childhood classics there, Steve. Good choices. I'm, I'm, I fully applaud you. I'm not sure whether whether Die Hard's a childhood classic. It's definitely a classic. Uh, Owen, then. We'll go in reverse order for this part. Owen, what's your triple bill? Okay. Um, first one that I went for, I thought kind of tied into seeing the raid this week. Um, it's a French film um, called The Horde, or La Horde. Uh, it's a zombie film. Actually, it's about a group of people and there's terrible arc, a group of, sorry, sort of crooked cops. And they, um, go into this terror block, which is, um, run by, uh, a gang it's in Marseille. And then the zombie outbreak happens and, you know, it's the same sort of thing as every other zombie outbreak. They've got to try and survive and then they start working together, but there's a bit of friction and all that kind of thing. Um, but no, it's really good. It's just the same similar, like, setup, I suppose, in that they're in the terror block and there's lots of, Violence happening, lots of um, uh, aggressive zombies. They're not the, the classic Romero zombies. They're not the slow, shuffling, walking corpses. They're, they're more the um, the fast, jumping, violent zombies that you, you get in sort of modern films. Um, but it's full of action. There's a lot of humour, a bit of tension, as well as some, I think, some of the best scenes of any film from its genre. Um, I'm thinking, I, I won't say what it is in case you ever watch it, but there's um, a scene in a car park um, with one of the cops, and it, I think it's probably the, the, the only way that I'll remember that film, everything that happens in that film, is because of everything that leads up to that scene. I think that's a really, really um, great scene. But it's similar in the, in, in, uh, to the raid in that way, I guess, because there's this particular scene that we'll talk about later on, I imagine. Uh, imagine that everyone's thinking of the same scene from the raid that is quite iconic and will possibly be what defines that film for, for, for the rest of um, the rest of the people that watch it. But um, no, I, yeah, I really like The Horde and um, it, it kind of came out of nowhere for me. I was watching a few other films at the time, watching a couple of other zombie films and I watched one called The Dead, which is a really slow film. It's set in Africa. It's got these the proper traditional style zombies. Then I watched The Horde, which is just full of um, machine guns, shotguns, loads of pistols, shooting zombies in the head, lots of explosions and all that kind of thing. So, But it's a really fun film, actually. It's a really fun film. So I thought I'd mention that one because it ties in a little bit to, to the raid. Owen oh, in choosing zombie movies, shocker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it probably will happen every week, I'm imagining. This is it's just like, you watch zombie films like Steve watches Mighty Ducks films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shame they haven't made any zombies in a Star Wars film yet, I guess. But um, maybe we, may, hey, Steve, you know your your Mighty, Buc- Mighty Ducks reboot. Why don't we make zombie Mighty Ducks? No, there you go. Don't don't mess with a classic format. It's simple. <laughs> Could be a team of unlikely zombies who managed to win games despite like limbs falling off and there, you know. And the, but the, the hockey helmets would stop them from eating the brains. No, so. no, no, right, right. <laughs> Not happening. Red light, no. So, Owen, what is your second film? Um, my second choice, I don't know whether there'll be a crossover with this one, actually, but I've gone for Clerks. Um, oh, yeah, crossover. <laughs> I'll uh, talk about it with you now. <laughs> okay, good, because um, 
I've got a little bit to say about it, but I was hoping there'd be some more people to add a bit more uh, insight into how it was made and things. But yeah, classic Kevin, Kevin Smith film. I think it was his first full feature film that he made, and it was an indie film on a very low budget. He, you know, the story is he sold all his comics and he got all his friends to chip in and you know put together some money to make the film. But it's brilliant. It's a little bit clunky. The dialogue's not always. Um, uh, as funny now as it was when it was made, it has dated slightly, I think. But it's still very funny, even when when the, the dialogue seems a little bit clunky. The, the characters or the actors, I guess, make it funny because they're so quick to ad lib extra bits onto it, and it it just works. It, it's really believable. It's really funny, um, which is the crucial point, I guess, of a comedy is that it's funny. Um, but it's got great quotable dialogue, you know, it, it's stuff that you remember, and uh, yeah, it's brilliant. What, what what do you think, James? Yeah, it's do you know it's one of the films that made me realise that I liked the idea of filmmaking and things like that because I watched it and I, it was one of those we thought, God, if he can do that, anyone can do that, and it, it's what inspired me to to write. Basic Kevin Smith at this point inspired me to want to write films and things like that. Um, anyone who hasn't seen Clerks, basically, it's it's a day in the life of Dante who's having to go into work in a convenience store on his day off and you know throughout the film he keeps you know wailing i'm not even supposed to be here today and his whole world falls apart about as much as a 20 year old slacker's world can fall apart in a day um you know argues with his girlfriend uh, an ex-girlfriend comes back into his life and he thinks oh maybe i'd be better off with her the the brilliant most brilliant performance in this in my opinion is uh jeff anderson as randall who he who is basically the ferris bueller almost uh to to dante's cam uh dante's cameron because he is the person he works in the video store next door he doesn't care about anything he treats the customers terribly he locks up the video store whenever he feels like it and he is the one pushing dante to uh go out and enjoy his life and stop worrying about things it also had the debut of jay and silent bob and in this film they are a breath of fresh air, and it's it feels like they feel like one of those classic early cinema duos almost. I, I don't want to build them up too much, but they are a beautiful duo in this film. And Jay and Silent Bob, they went on to become a bit cheesy, and uh, um, but in this film, they are they're almost Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I don't want to build it up too much, but I can't help it. I love Clerks. It was made on his credit card, basically. Uh, and overall, the the making of the film came to less than five thousand dollars. At times, it shows, but at other times, you think, "Wow, someone can make stuff like this for five thousand dollars and put it out in cinemas." That's brilliant. Uh, so I absolutely adore Clerks. Great choice. The, the one thing I always thought about Clerks, though, is that he was struggling for money so much. I always thought, if you don't eat so much food, you fat get, <laughs> stop ordering so many takeaways, and surely you'll have so much more money to, to buy his film. The guy got no, kicked flying last online year. Because... <laughs> don't make him an online nemesis of the podcast. Do you, do you know last year he got kicked off a flight because he, he had to buy, he always has to buy two seats, right? Because yes. he's so fat. And this time he didn't buy two seats, and they had to kick him off the flight because he couldn't fit on. And he was yes. like, he, didn't, he was like, oh, well, I don't care. It's pretty normal. It's to be expected, to be honest. Why are you so accepted of the fact that you have to pay for two seats, my friend? Well, what's your, what's your final cho- choice then, <laughs> Owen? Uh, my final choice, I think it's a bit of a classic. It's another one of my favourite films. Um, from uh, I'm talking about the original 1957 film of 12 Angry Men, 
which yeah. uh, takes place. In, yeah, it's same same as Die Hard, I guess. In not it, it doesn't take up the full twenty four hours, but it only takes up about was it an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. But it's a story of twelve men who are on jury, and they have to decide whether an eighteen year old um, is guilty of murder or not. So each person comes through. They all represent different um, aspects of the human psyche, I guess. Um, but it's got brilliant performances. Henry Fonda in it is just absolutely amazing. One of, one of the best um, acting performances you'll find in any film, I think. And uh, But he, he's the person who comes up with the idea that, that there is a reasonable doubt after all the 11 others of the uh, jury have decided that, in their minds, that that 18-year-old kid is guilty. Um, so he puts the reasonable doubt in there gradually, tries to um, win everyone else over. Um, but it's a, no, it's a brilliant story as well. The, pl- the plot is great. There's such um, a, a big cast, I guess, of 12 people who are the focus of the film the whole time. Um, it, everyone gets really good sort of character development. Um, there's lots of twists in the story. It's, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I don't think I could say anything that a 16-year-old film student of A-level standard could, couldn't. But it's, yeah, I love it. It's, it's a brilliant film. I think um, out of my top sort of five films, it's, it's got to be in the top three because it, it's just um, amazing. I think anyone who hasn't seen it really, really should see it. It's uh, it's the closest, actually. I know it's not fair to judge a film, but it is the closest film I've seen to being like sitting in a theatre whilst watching it because as the characters start to get quite hot and sweaty, you feel yourself getting quite hot and it's quite tense and everything that the characters are, are, are sort of emoting on screen, you're feeling that as well. I think it's um, just a fantastic film. Everything about it, the way it's filmed, the way it's um, acted. Uh, it's Sidney uh, LeMond's first film as well. I mean, for directional debut, it's incredible, the achievement that he's made with 12 Angry Men. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's my final choice, 12 Angry Men. Absolutely. I just want to say that. Great film. Um, and... You mentioned about getting hot and sweaty with the characters. Well, I remember reading this a long time ago. Apparently, as the film progresses, he actually made the set smaller. Um, so the room starts off as quite a big room, but he, he physically brings the walls in um, in the room That's towards incredible. the end of the film to, to heighten that sense of claustrophobia. And I think he turned up the heating and everything as well. So you know, he genuinely made that room smaller i think that's a fantastic just little piece of set design and direction um which top yeah it's a brilliant film well james should we move on to your list number one of them is obviously clerks yes so that's my number one gone um number two uh, but i'm glad someone else chose it because it is a great film so my second choice uh is it's another john hughes film i've gone for the breakfast club from 1985 uh, starring Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, Ali Sheedy and Anthony Michael Hall. Um, those of you who don't know The Breakfast Club, it's basically five students spend a Saturday in detention. You know, they are a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess and a criminal. They're basically five teen stereotypes who share a detention together. They're not completely unrelated in the school. They don't have, they're not friends with each other, but over the course of a day, they... Um, they come to discover, uh, discover each other's weaknesses, each other's strengths, that they're not actually a bunch of stereotypes. They're, they are individual people. 
Uh, there's a number of John Hughes films, I think, that take place in the day. We mentioned Ferris Bueller earlier. There's uh, a, at least a couple more that take place in the day. Uh, but this one is my favourite. It deals with teenage issues and uh, identity in quite a realistic fashion. I think John Hughes did have a brilliant insight into teen angst and school dynamics. Um, plus, it ends with Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, Judd Nelson's Fist in the Air, uh, Hairs on the Back of My Neck Go Up, uh, thinking about that. I... I it's got funny lines. It's a great, fun Saturday afternoon film. I love The Breakfast Club. Well, I haven't seen it. No <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love to talk about it with you, but I haven't seen it, actually. Oh, well, I'm going to have to play this one of those films that I always wrote off. Yeah, and I, I did for a long time. Yeah, I, no, I wrote it off for a long time, thinking it was just like a kind of trashy. T- but no, it, if you like, yeah, if you like Ferris Bueller, you'll. I honestly think you'll like The Breakfast Club. It's a very, very similar film in terms of its worldview, uh, its outlook, its performances and direction and things like that. So Ferris Bueller seems like fun. The Breakfast Club, because of the name and like the poster and yeah, things like that, you think it's going to be poor, and it's not. I honestly think it is as good as. And in some cases, I think better than Ferris Bueller. Great film. I really enjoy it. What's your final choice then? Uh, my final choice, I'm going uh, all the way back to 1952 here. Uh, it's my favourite Western of all time. And it's High Noon, directed by Fred Zinnemann. And it stars Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly and Lloyd Bridges. And I was talking earlier about, you know, family films. This is a youth certificate film. This is a film that is suitable for the whole family, but it's not for kids. It's... Basically, Gary Cooper plays Will Kane. He's the town sheriff. He's getting married and hanging up his badge and leaving town with his new bride, played by Grace Kelly. However, uh, news gets into the sheriff's office that a man that Kane sent to prison is returning on the noon train to get his revenge on Will Kane. And at first, the townspeople uh, persuade Will Kane to leave, to to run away. And he said, no, I've got to face... Uh, a, Miller is the name of the gun. Got to face him down uh, and his brothers who are waiting at the station. And then the next hour and a half is basically Kane trying to convince the townspeople that he's protected for so long to join him in fighting down this dangerous criminal. And one by one, they all make their excuses as to why they can't help him. And suddenly this man who served this town so well is just left on his own to uh, to defend the town against Miller and his brothers. It beautifully shot, and um, Gary Cooper is amazing in this film as the kind of everyday man sheriff. He's not superhuman, and in a way, it reminds me a bit like um, Bruce Willis in John McClane. Uh, basically, he's not a superhero. He he will get hurt. He's vulnerable, um, but he's still got to face down this this really aggressive foe. It's just, and it, it all happens by noon. So it's basically, it's the morning of a man's life. It's absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you like westerns, especially, you have to see High Noon. What about if you're not that keen on westerns, but you like the spaghetti westerns? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I see. I see what you're saying. It there is an element. Of, it is. It is from the traditional school of western. Um, but in some ways, I think, I think if someone who appreciates, say, 12 Angry Men, you will appreciate the character. You will appreciate the characterization, the plot, um, and the performance from this. You could, 
the fact is the plot itself and the characters they could be transplanted to somewhere else in another time it doesn't need to be a western uh, and I think it has been I think um, it was remade by Sean Connery a sci-fi uh, Outland Outland I think it's called is basically okay. a science fiction space remake of High Noon um, but I, it is it is perfect filmmaking it's in the IMDb top 250 it's my favourite western but it it's not. It's more than a western. Okay, because I saw. Um, I'm not a massive fan of westerns anyway. And I saw Big Jake. You know the mm. um, John Wayne film the other yeah. week. Kind of. It just reaffirmed my, my opinion that I, I'm not a fan of westerns. But I presume then, if you're talking about the characterisation, then it's nothing yeah. like a John Wayne western. Which is no, no. It, it, it's a, it's a revenge thriller essentially. Okay. Uh, it. You know there are there are no there's not much about the frontier or anything like that it's not about the world in which they live in it's about one man uh deciding to not run but to fight for his honor against some people who he sent to prison basically it happens to take place in a western but i honestly think high noon transcends the western genre well james told us jerry had to go last in this section so now we're going to find out why not, not quite yet. We're going to build some tension. <laughs> Let's be cinematic about it. Uh, my first choice, I've talked about it before on the pod, I think, uh, is a Stanley Kubrick film. So, sorry, Steve, with your 2001 hatred. Um, <laughs> it's a 1964 film, Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Uh, it's an absolutely fantastic film. And I think... Uh, people have talked before about how, you know, the sort of urgency of trying to convey something in a compressed time frame and, and the challenges that fate, you know, that, that presents for a director. I think this is one of the best examples of how to address that. You know, it, it really does have such a, a tremendous amount of tension because of the time period and, it, and it, it conveys the sort of impending sense of doom brilliantly. For anybody who hasn't seen it, um, it's the story of basically a, a mad general, um, who decides that he's had enough and he needs to start a nuclear holocaust? Uh, <laughs> and so he sends, you know, it's the U.S. Air Force. He's he's part. Of, he's a commander, and he sends a squadron of planes out to uh, send Russia into, uh, well, send them into space, basically, um, which is going to kill and basically going to kill everyone because it's going to spark a, a global nuclear holocaust. Um, it's actually just a fantastic film on its own, but for the 24-hour period, it's less than 24-hour period, because, you know, it starts with the, the planes are out, you know, just as they as they do, they're always out there uh, roaming around, loaded up with bombs, and then they get the order to go and attack, so it's it's constrained by how long these planes have until they hit their targets, and as it gets closer to that time, the, the tension is pretty amazing. Well, the best thing about the film is that it's just a completely brilliant satire on the Cold War and, and military and all sorts of other things. Peter Sellers is in it. He's fantastic. Uh, he plays three characters, I think. He plays a, a really sort of straight-laced English uh, captain. And he also plays uh, titular Dr. Strangelove, who, even though he's not in it very much at all, completely steals the show um, and has some just fantastic lines. To, and I, he improvised a lot of the stuff as well, uh, which is just incredible, like the fact that they... they sort of told him to do one thing and he just came up with this brilliant, brilliant improvisation. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you have to go and see it. Go, go and find a copy of it. I'm sure it'll be cheap on DVD. Um, 
it's just a fantastic film. So so that's really all I have to say about it. I don't think I need to, to justify that one too much to anybody. Next up, then. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Great film. Yeah, okay. Next choice. Uh, trying to be brief. I went for a, a sort of... I know a lot of people have gone for comedies and gone for sort of 80s comedies and, and that kind of thing. I've actually gone for a more recent one, which is 2007 Superbad. Which I think is it, it got a lot of hype at the time, but well, it's actually a really, really good film. Um, it was directed by Greg Matola, who also went on to direct Adventureland, uh, which I liked, and Paul, which I haven't bothered to see because it looks terrible. Um, I think he he did a few episodes of Arrested Development as well, so you know what kind of style it's going to be. And if you've seen Arrested Development, it was co-written by Seth Rogen, so it's all the usual suspects. So this is the film that really kicked off careers, Jonah Hill. Michael Cera um, tells the story of those two and their other friend Christopher Mintz Plass who plays uh, McLovin as everyone knows uh, all three of them are really good at what they do uh, also features um, some quite hot young ladies as well uh, Emma Stone's <laughs> in it um, it's, it's, it's just a great sort of coming of age tale it's about three lads who need to get get some booze for a party and, and Basically, it's, it's all the kind of typical concerns you had when you were 16, 17, 18, trying to get booze and trying to go and pull some women and go to a party and be popular and be cool. Um, it's really, really funny. It's got some of the best sort of dialogue and lines that, that you really see in, in recent years in, in comedies. Uh, and it's just a really enjoyable, funny experience. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those films that, even though it's not technically the best film or anything like that, in terms of films that are in a 24-hour period, this is one of the ones that I enjoyed most, so uh, that's what that's what I went for. And finally then? Finally, drumroll please, da, da, da. <laughs> actually, as much as I was tempted to put Die Hard in, and in fact like Steve, I was tempted to, to do all three Die Hard and just leave it at that, um, I've actually gone for another film, an action film, which I've already mentioned, and uh, is this week's review, The Raid because it was so tremendously good that I actually think it's it's in the top three already. It was just fantastic. So rather than me going on about it now, I'll, I'll save it for the review section that's coming up, but uh, it's just brilliant, brilliant film. Okay, well, James, do you want to give everyone some of our um, what lists from Twitter? Yes, okay, so, yeah, had a few suggestions come in, um, at Stenors, uh, decided, he nominated The Goonies, now, it's so long since I've seen The Goonies, I can't vouch that it is in 24 hours, but I'm pretty sure it is, isn't it? Um, I can't honestly remember. Because it, it finishes the following morning, doesn't, like, the, the, the whole pirate ship bit is, mm. like, basically at sunrise the following morning, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's... That's applicable. Um, at Mully's, uh, Ferris Bueller as well. Um, and Nathan Human uh, went for Phone Booth, Buried, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So uh, a good mix there. Next week, we will be discussing our favourite kings and queens in honour of the Queen's Jubilee. So that will be next week's Triple Bill. Okay, well, after this brief musical interlude, we'll be discussing this week's new release, The Raid.
This week's big new release review was The Raid. And as I unfortunately haven't been able to see it, James will introduce the film for everyone. Yes, The Raid, the latest action blockbuster from Indonesia of all places, directed by Gareth Evans, a Welshman, and starring newcomer Iko Uwais. Uh, it's about <coughs> a SWAT team's incursion into an apartment block to arrest a drug lord. However, the apartment block gets shut down and the team have to fight their way out. And what did we all make of the film then? I think you know why I felt about it, because it was in my triple film. Uh, just, just absolutely brilliant. As I said earlier, I think it's the best action film I've seen since the Day Hard trilogy. Um, I'm struggling to remember a, a martial arts film I enjoyed as much. I, I, I'm a big fan of On Back, but I think it's it's definitely better than On Back, which is saying something. Yeah, um, it. Do you know what? It really reminded me actually of the kind of late '80s, early '90s Hong Kong cinema, especially the films of John Woo. Uh, and it started, I even got nostalgic flashbacks when the first um, title credit came up. Well, in fact, pre-titles. It was when the, the white text on blue saying Sony Classic Cinema came up. And I thought, that's what I remember from like The Killer uh, and A Bullet in the Head and things like that. So immediately I felt put at ease that I was going to be watching a genuine um, Far East uh, film. Uh, from from that kind of stable, I oh, know I totally agree with it. It was it was just relentless, wasn't it? Yeah, but without without really, you know, lacking the sort of slower contemplative moments. I thought the pacing was really good. They didn't just make it constant. You know, it wasn't like Crank or something like that, where it was just constant action. There was enough breakups in it and pauses to make it seem a bit more realistic. And you really sort of that was how they built up making you sort of sympathise or empathise with the characters and really think about it. I thought that it was paced brilliantly, actually, which, which was surprising because I expected it to just be non-stop. But there is a few moments where they, you know, they take a breather or the, the, you know, they're waiting for the next wave of attacks. And they, yeah. they really exploited them really well, I thought. I thought that that, that held the whole film together. Yeah. It just being one prolonged action sequence, if that makes and, sense. And that's why you can sense the director's influence from computer games there. Uh, you, you talked exactly you know, about waves of enemies and you know, it was almost like at times and I've heard the director has said that he takes it as a compliment if people compare it to a computer game. Um, it was like wave of enemy, wave of enemy and then you, there was almost like cutscenes. If you, you know any computer games you play, it was like the, there was some cutscenes for some plot exposition and then it was like, right, now back on with the action kind of thing. And it, it, even in the the way it was structured about going up in levels and how um, the kind of the end of level bosses at the end of every section kept getting progressively more difficult to be. It really did remind me of a computer game. You know, it reminded me of like Streets of Rage or something at times, which again, I, I think is brilliant. I, I, I want to see more of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you talk about having the waves of uh, enemies and stuff. There were people, there was a, a credit at the end. I don't know whether, whether anyone else saw it. There was Special Force number 18, Drugs Lab Guard number 21. So that sort of shows you the credit, you know. <laughs> so just wave after wave of these people. But you're right, it did, it did just remind me of a computer game. Um, I thought it was really, really good like that, though. You don't, you don't get films that, that do that kind of thing well. Um, mm. You know, you get some computer games that are adapted for screen. You mentioned Street Fighter. That was just a terrible movie. 
Yeah. I mean, that was nothing like that. But with, with, with this, he's really got it just absolutely spot on. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I thought it was really good. It's also what I find quite interesting is that, you know, you look into how this film came about to be made. And first off, you see, you know, it's from Indonesia and then you see directed by Gareth Evans and you think, well, what's going on here then? And you, you find out that um, basically he he was an out-of-work filmmaker in this country and his wife found him a job because she had contacts in Indonesia to make a documentary about Silaps, the, the martial art, which is, you know, the proponent in this. And that was how he discovered Eco Ways. And then he, at that moment, he said, we need to make this kid a star, um, which is a brilliant story in itself, that that is how this has come to fruition. And apparently they made this because they're trying to raise more money to make a much bigger crime epic, um, but they couldn't get the money together. And this was quicker and cheaper to make. So they almost made this to help get their next movie made. But this in itself is far more than a stopgap film. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the direction, I think, was the thing that made it stand out so much. I thought what sets it apart from most martial arts films is the stunts were good, don't get me wrong. The people performing them were excellent and, and the things they were doing were, were, were great. They were really entertaining. But what makes it so entertaining is it's not just the stunts that you're amazed by. It's the, it's the way it was shot. Um, it was, some of the camera work was like exceptional. Some of the, the way that the camera moved and it was sort of in sync with the fighting. You were you were never too close up. You were never too far away. It kept you involved. And, and as well, there was they've done a lot about the the rhythm of the fights. I uh, don't know if any of the rest of you have seen this, but mm. he was doing all sorts of stuff. Like they were the crew were clapping and stuff before they started the fights to try and keep the rhythm at the right pace and, and make it make it work in a sort of rhythmic way. And the, the soundtrack is very subtle. But it's always there in the background in the fight scenes and stuff. That it, it sort of keeps the, it's like a pulse. It's, it, you know, yeah. it's keep time for the fights. And I thought that was that was exceptional the way they they married that up really. Yeah, um, it was very very determined. You know, deliberate effort to to make that happen. It worked brilliantly. Yeah, a, an example of that is during one of those fight scenes. I read this this week. Um, at one point, there someone gets shot in the face three times in quick succession. And the director was saying they weren't trying to be needlessly violent. It's just that three gunshots at that point fitted the rhythm of the fight scene, uh, which I thought was a really interesting insight into how they were choreographing these fight scenes. And it was great as well because you could always tell what was going on. And in modern films, we we've, they've tended to go towards the area where you see lots of action and really fast cuts, and you can't actually tell what, who's hitting who and things like that. I've seen that happen a lot in a lot of modern action films, but this showed you enough of uh, the screen, showed you enough of the fight so that you always knew who was doing what to who. Uh, and I, I like that. But the handheld camera work kept you clo- still close and involved in the fight as well. Uh, I think it bridged those two approaches very well. Yeah, it, it was, I think what you're saying about the quick cuts, I think that was, that was really a fresh, breath of fresh air, really, because a lot of action films rely on sort of disorienting, you know, MTV-style quick cuts, and that, it wasn't necessary in this film. They didn't need to do that to, mm. to create the action, you know. There's, the fights were, were good enough in themselves to not need to be, you know, using quick cuts to make them seem exciting and dynamic. They were just brilliant. I mean, the, the martial arts that, that goes on is brilliant, but it's not just martial arts. There's guns as well involved, and it, it is violent. It's not going to be you know, a kid-friendly film or anything like that. It is very violent. But 
I never felt that any of it was like overblown or, or gratuitous. I think it was it was always sort of necessary or in keeping with the rest of the film. There was nothing that was just, you know, over the top and sadistic. And it did keep a very realistic sort of brutal edge to it all the way through. I didn't think there was anything that was unnecessary. So that's all for this week's podcast, unless you want to stay around for spoiler alert where we talk about the film in full. Uh, so, James, do you want to remind our listeners where they can find everything that we do? We're on Twitter, at the Failed Critic, and use the hashtag Failed Critic to let us know your choices for triple bills or your thoughts on this week's reviews or next week's review. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Failed Critic or on our WordPress blog at thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. Excellent. And next week's review is... Prometheus, finally, it's here. Years in the absolute making and excitement. We are going to be talking about Prometheus uh, a couple of days after it comes out. And, Jerry, where are you going to be for the next few weeks? Because you're not going to be joining us, are you? No, next week I'll be on holiday when we record the podcast. And then the week after that I'll be uh, recovering from major surgery as I get two of my knee ligaments reconstructed. So... As much as it might be hilarious to do the podcast while on morphine in hospital, I don't think it's the most advisable thing because I can't really control what what I'll be saying or whether any of it will have any relation to films whatsoever. So no different, so, no different to usual then. No, more or less the same, but with a bit more, <laughs> bit more hallucinations. You know? Excellent. Oh no, good luck with that, mate. Yeah. So as yet, I don't know how long I'm going to be away for, but at least the next two weeks. Okay, well, hope we'll get you back and well as soon as possible. I'm going to be sat around enough while I'm recovering, so uh, as soon as I'm I'm off the drugs and I'm I'm able to watch films again, then uh, I'll be back. Don't worry. Yes, so, listeners, thanks for listening once again. We'll be back next week with a review of Prometheus, our triple bill of best films, Kings and Queens, and obviously the good, the bad, and the ugly review and whatever other films we've been watching in the past seven days. So all that's left is to say goodbye, play some music, and then if you want to join us for Spoiler Alert, we'll be talking about the raid in full detail, spoiling the plot and everything, then come and join us for that. Critic Podcast is recorded and edited by Steve Norman with contributions from James Diamond and Jerry McCauley. The Failed Critic Podcast was created by James Diamond and is hosted by Liberated Syndication Podcast Hosting Services. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Welcome then listeners to Spoiler Alert, the second time we're trying this part of the podcast. Went down well last week. We This is the part where we review a film in its entirety uh, a new release in its entirety, including spoilers. Um, so if you've kept on listening, but you haven't seen The Raid, stop listening now, or else you're going to ruin it for yourselves. But if you have seen it and want to listen to us talk about it, carry on. So. Yeah. Yeah, talk- I mean, I mentioned in my review earlier about The Horde, whether there was a particular scene that I think the film's going to be remembered for. If I think what that scene is in this film... I'm pretty sure everyone's going to agree when I say it's the mad dog fight. Uh, 
in the sort of is it a boiler room that it's in? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, just such an incredible fight sequence. I don't think I've seen anything like it in any other kung fu film. No. Actually, it's the it's the best fight scene I've ever seen. I was thinking this when I was when I was there. I actually felt like standing up and applauding at the end of that scene. Yeah. Like, I actually yeah. wanted to just stand up and go, "Yes, well played." That's <laughs> fucking brilliant. But, yeah, I was in the cinema. It was interesting. There was just me, one other bloke on his own, and another bloke at the back on his own. So there were just three blokes who'd gone to see this film on their own. And the guy who was sort of sat closest to me, when that scene was happening, there's a bit where he sort of breaks both his arms. And I, the guy, he wasn't that close, but he just suddenly went, ooh, really loud. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I missed out on seeing this with. I actually had that very rare occurrence where I was the only person in the cinema to see this film. In fact, for, I I actually just walked into the screen. Now what? And then someone came in five minutes later to check my ticket. Uh, that was just very weird. I also had a um, I but that said, um, I I was wincing. I was like, oh, crawling up in my seat, kind of thing at times. Um, I think. I was slightly worried the opening five minutes or so when the the big drug baron, the bit where he's executing those people in front of him and uh, and just lays and runs out of bullets on the gun and then just lays lays the gun on the guy's shoulder and goes and picks up a hammer. At that point, I thought, oh God, am I? Do I actually have the stomach for this film? Because that <laughs> was that was a really ugh moment. Um, but the, it, even then, you didn't actually see anything too gratuitous. It was all in the mind, uh, the, the terror there. And but later on, it was just it was just fantastic fight scene after fantastic fight scene. And like Jerry says, with some moments where it just slowed it down, it it had a bit more plot and characterisation than I was expecting. Not a lot more, but more than I had been led to believe. A few people had kind of led me to believe it would just be fight scene after fight scene. I think it was more than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of... I saw the trailer when we went to see The Dictator, and I just thought, you know what? That just looks exactly like... Um, did you watch The Fast Show? And there's the big, long, yes. fight theme sketch. Yes. I just thought, yes. that is all that film looks like. But there is a story there. there I mean, you're right, it's, it's very sort of um, uh, simple story, I guess. But it's it's there, and it's told really well, so you can't, can't argue with it, really. Yeah, it, it sets up the story quite quickly at the beginning of the film. Yeah, within five minutes, you know that hey, he's got a pregnant wife, um, he's a rookie, and there's that interesting, that kind of old man, which I didn't get until the end of the film and I thought back, where there's that old man in the house, just as he leaves the house and he says, I'll, I'll bring him back. And I was like, what? what? That was that old man was just weird. But then, kind of, all oh, right, I get it. It ties up a little bit later. Um I did think the brother subplot kind of popped in out of nowhere. I don't know if I'd stopped paying attention for, to the subtitles for a few seconds or something, but all of a sudden I was like, oh, what? He's brother? Oh, it, that just jarred me slightly. It was the only point in the film where I went, oh, what? Hang on. And, and it, then, it was then the, it was the old man thing. In. The old man thing was, was sort of implied. That was the first indication you got. But in the, in the van, when they're talking about the henchmen, he mentions one of them, uh, mentions Mad Dog, and then talks about the other one, and it, and it cut to him. You know, it, uh, it, it cut to yeah. uh, to his face looking like sort of a bit sheepish, a bit, what's I going think, on? I you know, think my rather... problem was I was, um, I was making notes, and I think when you're making notes in a subtitled film, you can sometimes miss it. I think, I think it would, I'm not saying the film was at fault, I think I missed that. 
because I was scribbling down something. I can't remember what now, but um, but that you know, the fact is the plot the plot was there, and people might say, "Oh, there's not a lot of plot." Guess what? There's not a lot of plot in most Hollywood action films. <laughs> <laughs> stop. And yeah. I think to criticise this film for a lack of plot uh, would be uh, would be wrong, simply yeah. because a it has got some plot, b it's got more plot than most Hollywood films, or at least as much plot as most Hollywood action films, and see who cares when it looks this damn good. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather have a plot told like this than something in, uh, you know, Transformers 2, where they suddenly just stop the film in the middle of it to have the big giant robot explain what's happened so far, what they're going to do there, and then what's happening next, and then that's all the yeah. plot you get. So, <laughs> but it's like, it's interesting. I, I saw a quote about the, uh, about the raid. And someone said, uh, if Crocodile Dundee wielded action movies instead of knives, this is what he'd say when he goes, you call that an action movie? This is an action movie. <laughs> and it's, it's true. It's a proper, I, I, I want to say old-fashioned action movie, but it's not. It's kind of contemporary and modern, like you say, mm. with the twist being like a, a video game, almost. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, loved, I thought it was a brilliant action film. And I yeah, don't think I, there's uh, been many that have been even near it in terms of um, enjoyment in the last few years. Yeah, yeah like, and, and like I said with Ong Bak, I think Ong Bak is, is sort of, in a way, Ong Bak made a made a big splash because it was the stunts were so amazing, and you know Tony Jaa was you know kneeing people out of windows out over a twenty foot drop mm-hmm. and all sorts of amazing stuff. But in this, I think the thing that sets it apart is it's not the stunts. You're not marveling at the stunts per se. You're marveling at how the stunts are presented. Yeah, I think yeah. what makes it a bit of a landmark is that it's 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 like John Woo, you know. Back in the day, it's presenting martial arts films in a different way. It's not really been seen before. It's not really been done so so brilliantly, so slick. Um, and I don't think I can't remember a martial arts film looking this good. I mean, the other thing to say about that though is that it's not like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where it's you know it's all mm. style and no substance. It is it is hard hitting, it's brutal. Yeah, it's, it's it's a perfect marriage of that sort of you know the classic Enter the Dragon kind of lots of fights, kung fu, all that kind of stuff with the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon amazing sort of style and, and you know, cinematic sort of uh, presentation of it. I think it was just, it was brilliant. It was, it's definitely the kind of thing that you want this to inspire a lot of other films in a similar yes. vein, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was and watching also- it thinking this, is, this has to be a landmark and this has to spark a whole bunch of other films and hopefully it'll change how Hollywood action films are made as well in the same way that the Bourne films sort of changed things. I hope this yeah. sparks a lot of change in, in the way films are made. And I think it's really good because I, I can see a very bright future for uh, Eco Ways because he did come across, he had a lot of charm, he had some vulnerability, he, he reminded me of kind of like Bruce Lee, young Jackie Chan. There, there's a definite star quality about him but I also really, really want to see more of um, uh, Yayan Ruhain. Uh, I'll probably not pronounce that correctly, but Mad Dog, um, who actually co-coordinated all the fight scenes. And he was... I, I was thinking about future triple bills that we might do, and I really did want to do at some point future triple bills, your favourite fight scenes. I think this is going to end up in all of our triple bills now. And also I was thinking your favourite bad guys and Mad Dog has instantly at least leapt into my reckoning of my favourite bad guys in cinema because he doesn't need to say... He's just pure menace. And when he does say something like, um, squeezing a trigger is like ordering takeout. Oh, such a great line. Uh, and uh, and it, was, it was really kind of 
almost cliched that he could have just killed this bloke, but he was like, no, let's get rid of our guns here. Let's do this mano a mano. I'm so hardcore that I could kill you, but I'd rather do it with my own fists kind of thing. He was terrifying. Yeah, I mean, you got a, it, it was almost an appetizer, wasn't it, with that fight with the, yes. um, with the other cop in, in, the, in the flat. Uh, it just gave you an idea of what was to come. You knew he wasn't going to lose that fight. You, you knew he had yeah. a massive part to play in the final part of the film. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was just great. The way that he, when he was trying to break the guy's neck and he was just sort of flapping that with his hands and he's like, no, no, batting his hands away. He wanted it to be perfect and you just thought, yeah, yeah, there is some, something absolutely epic to come later with this character. Yeah. And like I said, there yeah. was some great, uh, I love the way that, different there were bosses essentially end of level bosses like uh, first off there's the guy who gets a machete out from underneath his table uh kind of thing and you think yeah god he's he's going to be hardcore and then no he's dispatched pretty quickly kind of thing and then there's the guy who sticks his machete through the false wall uh and you think oh god he's really hardcore and it's like oh no he's been killed now <laughs> and it was just like <laughs> it just kept it's like oh no now you've got mad dog kind of thing. And it, I, I love that element of it yeah, I like the fact as well, Jacker, the, the cop who Mad Dog killed, he seemed to be, you know, one of these, maybe a main character, was, was you know, overcoming the odds and getting through these things. So I think the fact that he was, he was beaten by Mad Dog was, was quite a nice change, I thought. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things, in, in most Hollywood films, what would have happened is Mad Dog would have lost that fight. He would have pulled it back from the brink. When he was about to get his neck stamped, he would have pulled yeah. the knife out from his sock or something like that. I was half expecting that to happen, to yeah. be honest. Uh, and then someone else would have done the, the climactic fight scene. You know, maybe the main, the main yeah, guy. Yeah, maybe the main guy but, would would turn out to be a really yeah, good fighter or something. But they resisted yeah. that temptation, and actually, it made that second fight so much better because you'd already seen Mad Dog in action. Yeah. You'd already seen how good he was, and you were you were sort of one when he wanted to take on two guys. You were sort of like, actually, he can probably awesome. do this. this yeah. probably, uh, <laughs> probably going to be well, a pretty, think, pretty yeah. even battle. I was thinking one of those is going to die here. Yeah, uh, it's a Hollywood film, though. You mentioned earlier, if it was a Hollywood film, the guy who was in the flat who was injured, you know, when they... Actually, the turning yeah. point film for me made it really um, one of the films I thought was... Uh, this is just a brilliant film. With the bit where they drop through the floor in the, from one flat to the next and they just have the people dropping through. Yeah. The, yeah. But anyway, anyway, that bit where they blew up and the guy got injured and he was in the flat. If it was a Hollywood film, he would have just crawled in at the end and shot Mad Dog to save him. Yeah. I thought... But they, they resisted it. They just made it absolutely about um, uh, the two mate, the two brothers. Yeah. And I thought that was, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a nice touch. Yeah. Set Once it up nicely for a sequel. <laughs> yeah. One small criticism I thought is, is that the ending actually I thought was a bit out of keeping with the rest of it. I must say they, they sort of, it seemed to just be like, oh, we need to make sure that this has can possibly have a sequel actually. So we'll, We'll stick this little ending bit in. I thought that that maybe detracted from the rest of it. It wasn't quite as hard hitting as, as most of it had been, but it wasn't bad. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it, I, the ending it it did remind me again of like those kind of uh, John Woo, uh, you know, early Hong Kong. For it did it fitted in with them. It might not have fitted in quite with this film, but I think it at least fitted in with that type of film. Uh, and I, apparently, they have now made some changes to their big crime epic so that they've changed a lot of the backstories in that film so that this film does flow more naturally into it so i am very interested to see what happens with this there i don't know if it's a direct sequel but certainly the next the next film in this universe anyway yeah they they hinted at the sort of the corruption and the 
you know, who was ordering the lieutenant yeah. around. Um, and I liked that they, they didn't really bother making, you know, making too much of that. They didn't go into detail about it. It was just a, there was a little exchange at the end. And then that was it. It wasn't expected for you to sort of, you know, find out that entire backstory, which was a nice way of, of basically hinting, right, we're going to, this is going to be explained at some point later. This is what's underpinning this entire universe. But they didn't feel the need to, you know, throw in all this superfluous stuff. It was, it was enough for those two to understand it. And you watch the dynamic between those two rather yeah. than letting the audience in on it, which I, it, it's, it's a sign of confidence from the filmmakers, which is anything. I think he's confident enough that he's going to, you know, be successful with this and make the second one. He doesn't need to do that. So it, it was nice. It was rather than, as I say, like, Hollywood, stop, sorry to stop there. Keep on battering Hollywood here, but they they would have thrown in a bit of detail, you know what I mean, to to make yeah. the audience understand. But it was very trusting of the audience that you don't need to know this; you just yeah. need to know that those two know it, and this is why uh, this you know they've acted as they as they have. And it, yeah. it was it was not sort of spoon feeding you every bit of thing that they thought you might want to know, which was the, which was good. Uh, talking about Hollywood, the the real worrying thing is apparently the rights for the American remake of this was sold even before it was released. Yeah, so there right. will be an American oh, yeah. remake of this. Um, uh, it'll God knows. John Cena and The Rock in it. Like, <laughs> it probably there was quite a lot of wrestling moves in this film, actually, which I, I picked up on. I thought I did. Yeah, I, I, I wrote down like wrestling DDTs in my notebook. and all sorts. Yeah, of stuff. I wrote yeah. down wrestling as well um, because it did feel like one of those epic. At one point, felt like one of those epic half-hour Hell in a Cell type matches that I watched in my youth, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and again, I thought I'm saying that as a compliment because it, it was just great fun to watch in that sense. Well, yeah. on the yeah. it, it's interesting. A lot of the finishing moves almost were being used as um, as finishing moves as they're meant to be. Like in wrestling, you know, someone yeah. Gonna, they get up and they do it again and then they get up. Yeah. But in this, there was a bit with the, the door I and mean, he just slammed the guy's head on the door. Oh, God, and, the yeah. open door frame. The, the, like, yeah, the choke slam and all sorts of stuff going yeah. on. Was, yeah. yeah. There was some good finished moves. But I was, yeah. I was wondering whether it was a homage, you know, whether whether he was a bit of a wrestling fan and he, he sort of threw that in. He must but, have been. I mean, he must have been. It, it's, 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 it was nice in that it was, you know, it, it did fit. It was sort of Mortal Kombat-esque in the fact that Sometimes you would, they would just batter them, and then there would be occasions where they'd do something a bit, a bit yeah. different, a bit special. Finish like him. Yeah, <laughs> it felt a bit like Mortal Kombat, which is yeah. it's nice, and it was obviously far superior to the Mortal Kombat film. So yeah. Well, on the bombshell that America are going to remake this film in Hollywood, <laughs> boy, best leave the podcast there for this week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 